If you want to know how to create like the grades, let's break it down. People ask me like why I don't schedule posts is because when I post things, I get this feeling and I talk to people and I'm looking at the internet when things are popular and when people are on lunch and when people are texting me and when people are around and when I actually have time to go engage with all my other accounts and respond from my account. Welcome to Create Like the Greats, a podcast where we take you into the inner workings of how some of the greatest creators of all time did or do what they do. I study the strategies and techniques of some of the greatest creators, some of the greatest creations, some of the greatest people, minds, entrepreneurs, developers, builders, engineers, strategists, storytellers, makers are taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. I'm Ross Simmons, your host, and I'm here to help you in your pursuit of creating something great. Let's get started. Today is a special episode. It's a special episode because today we've got somebody who I would say just gets it, just gets it as it relates to content. You know, one of the things that I've been telling people for a very long time is that content is one of the most fundamental, foundational elements of the world that we live in today. Content itself shapes our beliefs, it shapes our perspective, it shapes our world. And while many of us don't realize it, the content that we consume ultimately sometimes can even have a major impact on our moods, our behaviors, the way that we bring ourselves every single day. I've been creating content for a long time and I've created a lot of it. And I can say that along the way, I have found and uncovered a lot of techniques and strategies for creating, distributing, and optimizing content that gives me, ultimately, the life that I'm aspiring to live. I've shared on a previous episode what that has looked like for me and how we develop content, the stories that we use to create opportunities in business and growth. But today, I wanna talk about somebody who really gets it, who gets the idea of using content to build a moat. And when I say a moat, I'm intentionally describing it that way because he's understood and unlocked opportunities that many would have seen as impossible. He has built content brands. He has built a personal brand and he has been able to generate a significant amount of revenue on the back of content. Not only that, he has been able to generate revenue for himself on the back of content, for clients on the back of content. He's helped clients generate over a hundred million dollars worth in email marketing attributable revenue. I'm talking about Chase Diamond. Chase is currently a partner at Structured, a top e-commerce marketing agency where he runs the email team. But he's not just that. Chase is a self-proclaimed e-commerce email marketing nerd who happens to be building, in my opinion, one of the greatest and underrated content marketing empire of this generation. It has been extremely exciting to watch Chase build this business, build an entity and a flywheel that I would consider one of the best in class examples of how to stack digital assets to ultimately create a digital empire in the modern world. I am so excited to be able to introduce you to Chase Diamond. Chase, thank you for being on the show. Before we jump in, I do have to say congrats from one girl dad to the next. I want to appreciate you for um, your grind, but also the dad life and blending it with the work life. So I'm going to start with the dad question. How has becoming a dad changed your perspective on business and life? So I'm now a girl dad twice over. So I just had a, a new one a couple months ago. So I've got two girls and probably done. So that's my path. I think the the biggest thing though, like kind of on the the business side, like about three years ago, I had my first daughter. 
And back then I was working like six, seven days a week, you know, 12, 14 hours a day. The grind was real. And I never thought like of this concept of like taking time off and fraternity leave and all this would ever be feasible, possible, nor would I ever want it. And I actually forced myself to take one. And that was like the best thing I ever did. It took like three to four weeks off. It allowed me to really think about what was important and allowed me really to restructure like my day to day and my work. So that way um, in my business, I wasn't a bottleneck and in my business, people weren't so dependent on me. And I think we created in you know a short period of time, a lot of, you know, people being a lot more leaders than kind of followers. I think in the beginning, you know, you think it's kind of cool and you kind of have this ego as a business leader that you create these followers where in reality, I realized I want to create a business where I have equals and I have other leaders and I'm learning just as much from them, if not more than they're learning from me. So I think it allowed me to have that shift in mindset that like I have to now keep the nights and the weekends open to be there for my family because that's what I want and that's important. It also allowed me to uh, to start saying no more often. You know, I started saying yes to everything and now I'm just like, Hey, look, I'm on fraternity leave. I can't do it, right? And it's kind of like an easy, good excuse oftentimes. So, you know, in two years from now, I might still be telling people I'm on paternity leave, right? I'm not going to lie. I use it still to this day as an excuse. And I know someone might be listening to this and they're like, Ross, so this is just an excuse. But it's it's real. Like when you have little ones, if you have a goal to be a good parent or a good dad, like you have to make some tough decisions. And like 22-year-old Chase would have probably said yes to everything. 22-year-old Ross would have said yes to everything. But at these current points, it's like you can't always say yes. I think it definitely crystallizes priorities across the board. Would you say that's kind of the same experience that you've had? Yeah, 100%. And on that too, like I know that the time I have online is so finite. So I have to figure out ways and systems to be so much more efficient, right? Before, you know, I could just scroll Twitter and LinkedIn and read all these things. And, and those things happen, but now those happens like on nights and weekends when the kids are asleep. So I make an effort every night after my kids go to bed that I'm on the treadmill for like a half hour, 45 minutes, just listening to podcasts and catching up on the news. Whereas before I used to spend the first few hours of my day, you know, doing that. And, and in hindsight, like I probably could have been more efficient before, but I just didn't have anywhere to be that I could kind of just stretch it out. So I've been way more efficient and I think way more effective as a result. Congrats on the second. It's uh, I'm at two as well. I've got two girls, one boy, and uh, yeah, I'm also I'm done at this point. But um, congrats. So I want to jump into something that I think you live as well, and this is I'm going to say two ideas, two concepts, and I'd be curious to get um, your thinking on them. So the first one is think like a media company, and the second one is media is the ultimate form of leverage. And when I think about people in the space, you seem to be someone who really gets media. Can you tell me a little bit a way the route? around the way that you think about media and what these two ideas might mean for you? A couple months ago, I would have thought of media more in my world as like personal brand. I think personal brands are like the ultimate leverage. Um, But I've also had this kind of concept that I've been working on over the past couple months, let's call it, where I want to build things that don't have my name and my face on it. So that way it doesn't require me. So I've got like these strong personal channels and these strong newsletters. So on social, collectively, I don't know, probably have 300, 400,000 followers across LinkedIn, Twitter, et cetera. Um, my, my newsletter that goes out a few times a week is about 75,000 subscribers. So got a really big base of mainly folks in my personal brand. But again, it requires me and my content and my thoughts where I love the idea of like this network of like theme pages or meme pages, if you want to call it that, kind of like what you know the Jerry Media Company did with like Fuck Jerry and some of those pages on Instagram. You know, certain people used it back in the day on Facebook pages. We've seen that happen on Twitter. And I'm kind of leading into the next wave, which I think is going to happen on LinkedIn, 
So I've been building out pages, like one is called AI Evolution. You know, it's been around for 75 days and I've grown it from zero to 55,000 followers. And, you know, it's gotten like 5 million, 7 million impressions. I've done the same thing with a copywriting page called Daily Copywriting. It has almost 50,000 followers. I've got a marketing page. So I think the answer to your question, the, the evolution- You have to give all the plugs first. Marketer tips, daily LinkedIn tips, copy MBA, email of the day. Folks, you have to check them out. It is literally a masterclass in how to run these pages. All right, now back to you. I did want to give you the plug because it is deserved. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Yeah. If you want to take those, go for it. But yeah, so with, with that, like I, I went from personal brand being is the strongest leverage to now thinking more like an operator trying to simultaneously build the personal brand while also building these channels because they really work symbiotic where the pages really grew on the back of the personal brand, but now the pages help lift the personal brand and they really work together where I boosted them and created them and kind of took them from zero to a hundred. And now they're helping return the favor because they're attracting audiences that I don't have on the personal brand side. So I think like building that out is so great. You know, I've grown my newsletter to 75,000 subscribers and 90 something percent of that have come from Twitter and, and LinkedIn alone. And I feel like I'm just starting to scratch the surface. So yeah, completely agree. I think like everything I do is fueled by like, how do I build an audience? And then how do I feed them products, services, courses, events, whatever they want to learn. So that's been my strategy. Go hard on audience introduce courses. I do I have a virtual events every quarter. I've got agencies. So now I'm figuring out the offerings for that and kind of backing into it. And with all of these media properties that you've kind of built up, they're driving attention, awareness, new leads, new prospects, et cetera. You're essentially building in many ways, like a bit of a, a content moat, so to speak. Where do you see this going down the road? Like, do you view this little digital empire that you're building as kind of a, a portfolio of companies or a portfolio, so to speak, that you plan to maintain or is the play longer term something else? Yeah, it's a, it's a couple of things. And one other thing uh, that I actually did pretty interestingly about three months ago, I bought 50% of a website called Lose the Very. And it's just a simple widget where it helps people remove the word very from their vocabulary. So kind of silly. That's literally all it does. It's free. Um, and, and what I liked about it is that it was under monetized. So the site gets about 150 to 200,000 visits a month, but they were only making like a couple grand and they had no newsletter collection. So the way that I see social, the way that I see media is all around how do we build a newsletter? I've built newsletters in the past to 100,000, 500,000 you know, subscribers. So I'm using organic social and I'm using these websites that I can go buy. Uh, you know, I'm in talks with a, one of the largest AI media properties to buy a minority stake because I want to go do the same thing. I want to build out the newsletter even further. I want to capture that attention. And I think the newsletter piece to me, that's the most interesting with all of this. And I see organic social as a way to funnel people there. So I think the the end goal is a couple of things. I think like each of these pages, um, right now they're just feeding to the Chase personal newsletter, but I think they could be standalone newsletters on their own. Um, I think building out events for each of them is interesting. I kind of do more general marketing type events right now, but I think as they get large enough, right? Like as they're 250,000, 500,000 followers, they become really powerful. Like this guy named Daniel Murray, he's built a really powerful page on LinkedIn um, to like 500, 600,000, exactly 500, 600,000 people. And I can't disclose his revenue, but he does like really impressive numbers, uh, on the back of that one page. So I kind of see that, you know, my goal for 2023 is to try to build the chase network and kind of the page network to about a million followers on LinkedIn alone. That's my goal is to build it out. And then I think it obviously lends itself maybe to services. Like if I could build this network, technically I could probably blow anyone's content up. The way that these all work right is like by sending likes and comments and engagement early, 
you can make things go viral. Um, there's like this kind of answer that I've seen before where these guys, I think, had an agency called Social Chain. They at the start of a presentation um, made up some fake soccer player, or football player, I guess you should say, and they made him trend on Twitter. Right? Like, just think about that power. Obviously, with great power comes great responsibility, but that's how I think about it. Talk to me through what you view as the steps to get to this 1 million mark. So that's where you're going. That's where you're heading. How do you make that come to life? So I think there's three things in particular on LinkedIn that you have to do to do well. I think one is good content, right? Like that's that's number one. That's non-negotiable. That's every platform. Two is volume. I think people are slacking on the volume. Dude, I'm posting a minimum of three times per day on LinkedIn on my personal page every single day, seven days a week. You know, I'm not on the mindset that like, hey, it's only Monday through Friday. Like I live and breathe and die by this, dude. I'm obsessed. So I post three times a day per minimum. So it's like, how do I at the very least maintain that? Or how do I how do I 2X that, right? Like I'm thinking about ways in which I can 2X it. Potentially the quality of the content comes down a little bit, but it's just a quantity game. Every time I post, it's an opportunity for me to gain followers, build trust, offer value and or go viral, right? Like you don't know what's going to blow up. Dude, uh, two or three days ago, I posted something really simple and silly about like the psychology of how you think about discounts, where the smaller the, the actual price of it is, showing a percentage off typically converts better. So let's say $50 is the product. Um, by showing 10% off, most people are going to convert more on that than $5 off, right? Even though it's the exact same thing. But if I was to tell you the product is $1,000, if I was to tell you, hey, it's $100 off or 10%, the dollars off tends to lend better, you know, just through my data. Dude, I posted it, thought it was super simple, didn't think much of it. Dude, it got like north of a thousand likes, it got like, you know, 75,000 to 100,000 impressions. So the way that I see it post is like every post gives me either learnings or insights or knowledge about things I can expand on in Twitter threads or LinkedIn carousels or newsletters, um, or just gives me a chance to connect with someone. And, and then the last one is distribution or engagement. So, so again, so rounding out quality content, quantity content, and engagement. So on my pages, I only post once per day because it's just me doing it kind of like as a side hobby. I would love to get those now to three times a day, uh, morning, afternoon, and evening, because a lot of people that follow me and engage with me are global. I've got people in the US, in Europe, in Asia, you know, Africa, et cetera. So just posting at different times in the day to reach different audiences. So I think uh, just increasing volume on the pages as the pages grow, um, as I create more pages, it just really has like this compounding network effect. And do you see from, from all of this, like what's your play to actually make that scalable? Like, are you going to start bringing in teammates and colleagues to support on this? Like today, what does the operation look like to manage all of these things, the agency, what's going on in your world that gives you the ability to always be on? I, I think the, the hardest thing to learn, but the best thing for me to learn was the fact that like, I really need to double down and lean into my strengths and just ignore my weaknesses and ignore my weaknesses doesn't mean like it doesn't get done. It means I find, you know, an employee or a partner. So on the on the agency side right now, we're about 139 employees. I'm one of uh, four owners. We have, you know, employees in six countries. There, like we've gotten to the point where like there's senior level, there's execs, we've got mid-level, we've got juniors, we've got associates. So at that point right now, I'm kind of just like the face of the agency on the stuff that I talk about, primarily email. I wouldn't say it's automated, but I'm pretty hands-off. You know, spend a couple hours a week on that business, just creating content and driving business. When I think about my role, it's very content revenue operations kind of focused, like in terms of that side, and very little on like the back office, like finance, accounting, hiring, bookkeeping, et cetera. So really the thing I think that's allowed me to run multiple businesses and to scale 
It's just specifically focusing on the things I enjoy and I'm good at. So again, like my, my full-time job now in a sense is being a content creator, but I'm not a content creator. Like most people are content creators and they have like a, just a course. I've got all these different types of businesses that really are synergistic and they feed itself. So if I post content on LinkedIn, it builds the personal brand, but it also feeds the agency. Um, if people go through my course, that benefits me personally. But like a lot of people realize that like doing e-commerce email marketing is a lot of work. So they end up buying the course and then hiring me, right? So I think A is like picking things that have overlap and synergy. And then B, picking the same role across all the businesses. So the context changing, the context shifting is very minimal. Um, it doesn't really matter what business I'm working on. I'm kind of working on all the businesses at the same time, in a sense. And then how do I go from here to, to where I'm going? Doing doing a lot of kind of testing around like AI, um, trying to teach the kind of chat GPT and some of the other tools, my specific style. For, for the personal brand, I'm a little bit more particular about it. Like it has to be really on point. But the nice thing about some of these other channels I'm bringing, dude, I can bring in teammates, I can bring in ghostwriters, I can bring in assistants, I can repurpose from the personal brand. So I really like that side of the arm because I could bring in team members or, or automate things more easily because I'm less protective and less obsessive about it because it's not under the Chase Diamond umbrella. So that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. Let's pretend I'm running in a, a new LinkedIn page called Daily Photography and I want to follow the Chase Diamond blueprint. What advice would you give me to get started and to actually someday be able to scale and get to a level that you are at? Yeah, I think the, there's a couple of things. I think one is like you have to consume good content to understand like the types of things that people are interested in and kind of things that maybe move you. And then as you're creating content, like I think it's like building a muscle, just like you work out every day, you practice and you build this muscle where over time you're like, you're gaining muscle mass and you're getting in better shape with content. Um, you just have to practice posting every single day and you have to realize and be understanding that most people aren't going to see it. And, 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 you know, I've been creating content for a very, very long time. People just started founding me about 12 to 24 months ago, but I've been doing this six, eight, 10 years, right? Like, I, I don't know if I was crazy enough or I was silly enough or dumb enough, but I just started creating content and I almost looked at it as like a journal for myself. If nothing else, it was a good way for me to look back on and that's what kind of kept me going. So I think like just building the muscle. Um, and then I think finding other like-minded friends, coworkers, family members to kind of boost each other's content, super important, right? Um, co good content and a lot of content alone isn't going to move the needle. You need someone to engage with it. Or you need multiple people to engage with it. And I think you might even talk about this too, right? Most people spend all their time on content creation and very little time on content distribution where at this point now, like my 80-20 is spending 80% of the time just distributing it, right? Creating the content now because I've built this muscle and built this library and built this database is easy. People ask me like, why I don't schedule posts? It's because when I post things, I get this feeling and I talk to people and I'm looking at the internet when things are popular and when people are on lunch and when people are texting me and when people are around and when I actually have time to go engage with all my other accounts and respond from my account. I think the biggest mistake that I made is I was posting on LinkedIn and then I was dipping, I was bailing. I was like, I would post there, forget that I posted, come back in a few days and like, oh wow, people had questions and people asked things. And dude, someone actually called me out on LinkedIn saying like, Chase's content is so good but I've commented on a dozen of his posts and I've never seen him like it. I've never seen him comment. And that I really took to heart. And now I carve out 10, 15, 20 minutes after I post just to respond. Most of the time, I literally just like things, copy and paste saying thank you, but it's something, right? It's meaningful enough that it's gotten, it's made a big difference. I now notice the same people as soon as I post comment. And, and even whether I just like it or comment back, it really helps. So that's kind of how I think about it. It's like, 
you have to create content. You have to practice creating content. Your content's going to suck. It's going to slowly get better, you know, and then you're going to look back and it's still going to suck. Like the stuff I'm making today, you know, I think it's good. You know, in three years, I'm going to look back and be like, damn, I knew so little, right? Um, which is great. That's growth. It's true. I think that's so interesting. Like you're in a very interesting point where when you start getting those comments, it means you built like a community, really. Like people are coming back to you and they're in responding multiple times. They're looking for a bit of a dialogue. You're at a very special point in like your creator journey where it's like now your platforms aren't just Chase's platforms. They're a community of like-minded individuals where if somebody even calls you out, your community will now have your back and they'll start to like represent you, which is, which is special. So congrats on, on building that. When you think about your content creation process, I know that there's, you've shifted heavily into like recognizing the importance of distribution. Can you talk me through like from the start of the day through to the end of the day, what does your creation process look like with this creator hat as like your kind of MO and your main priority? Yeah. So I think like the, the morning when I wake up, it's all about the inputs. What are the things that I'm being fed? So I'm you know, looking at things that I posted yesterday on social and kind of how they performed and what comments or questions people asked. I'm looking in all the slacks that I'm in, you know, my agency slacks and just third-party slacks I'm in. Uh, what are the questions? What are people sharing? What are they saying? Um, are there any kind of relevant news stories kind of in the business space that have happened? You know, what's going on in AI? Um, you know, what events are happening? So in the morning, it's just like, how do I consume as much as possible? So that way over the course of the day, I've kind of got to this point where subconsciously I'm digesting it. It's like, I'll, I'll, I'll consume, I'll consume, I'll consume. And then while I'm on something like this or I'm responding to emails, I'll be like, oh, I got something. And then I'll go quickly write it down, right? Um, or like, honestly, like depending on what I'm doing, like because my LinkedIn stuff is newer and because, dude, I've literally gone from 27,000 followers to 187,000 followers in seven months. Most of the content that I shared on Twitter or on LinkedIn seven months ago, no one saw. So like a lot of that is like, what what's the easy one? Like, what can I repurpose from six or 12 months ago that no one saw that now I have a new audience that either A, I can just straight up repurpose the same thing or B, how can I add new context with the new learnings or how can I even update the numbers? So maybe it was something like, here are 10 email marketing tips I learned from 100 million in revenue. It might just be something as simple of like, Here's 10 things I learned from $200 million in revenue, right? And it could be the, the exact same thing. Or maybe I'll tweak like, you know, number one out of 10. So um, it's it's a quasi of like repurposing things from the past um, and or editing things from the past or creating net new things. But because I have such a backlog of, you know, I've been t- tweeting three day, times a day, every day for three years. I've got so many things that I want to expand on. I'm also creating three newsletters a week. So there's like just different bites from there that I want to pull from. I might just see something that I like on social and just repost it and kind of credit the person. I might just say like, I think I've done this before with you before. I'll screenshot your post so you can see your name and then I'll just, I'll use the text you and I'll credit Ross, right? Exactly. And, and people, I've had, I've had one person complain ever that I did that and a thousand plus people have said, thank you so much. Cause it's like, as you get to scale, exactly. It's great promo. You, you create the content for the distribution. I think one person is just like, Hey, this is my content. I spent a lot of time on it. Don't don't reshare. I'm like, all right, cool. And I just took it down. But every other person has appreciated it. So long-winded. It's like consume, consume, create, repurpose, edit, create, right? So it's kind of like this dialogue where like, you know, my team is feeding me things that like they want me to teach them. And people are asking me things. I'm just really kind of almost compiling like this mental and sometimes this physical FAQ of like the things in which content I created before people had questions about. So it's almost like an extension or it's like, this is like the version two of it. 
that's very much the blueprint that a lot of creators should be following. But instead, most are trying to create from the ground up every single day. Net new, let me just come up with an idea. Let me look at a blank screen and genius will hit me versus like this model where it's like, look at your own greatest hits. Look at some of the inputs from people who are talking to you and use all of that for inspiration. I love that. When you're thinking about all of these assets that you're producing, they're all going back to the newsletter. Someone's listening to this thinking, how in the world do you make money from a newsletter? How would you describe the monetization strategy that you've embraced? Could you tell me a little bit around that and how, how it works? Yeah, not, not to toot my own horn, but I've gotten pretty good at this point. And it's because it's, it's, it's a couple of things. I think a lot of creators create massive followings, but they don't think about monetization until they're already big. And so it's not really like ingrained in the DNA of their content or kind of their audience. From the beginning, my goal is always to add value. But I think value is a two-way street. You, you give and you take, right? So I'm giving value. And a lot of it's altruistic, but I also know selfishly that it's going to return back in my direction in a number of ways, um, whether it's a client, whether you know it's a course buyer, whether it's someone that paid for one of my events, whether someone's paid for consulting, right? So I, I think value is a two-way street. And I have no shame in that, right? Like I, I, you know, I give and that's the way that, that's the only reason I'm still here today creating content because it's been able to provide a lifestyle for me. So ways in which I monetize it, there's a couple. So one is the most kind of traditional uh, sponsors within the newsletter. So the, the problem I'm facing right now is I have limited inventory, right? I post the newsletter three times a week. Um, and the way that I structure deals is I sign monthly retainers. I don't do these really one-off deals. So I've had the same sponsors for the last three, six, nine months. It just hasn't changed. I haven't upped the price, et cetera. And it kind of comes with this package of uh, newsletter posts as well as kind of social media posts. So, you know, I'm charging all these companies five grand, 7,500, 10 grand a month. And the nice thing for me is I don't have to worry every month about who's going to sponsor this, right? The, the the downside, right, is like I technically probably could be charging instead of five to 10K, probably could be charging 10 to 20K because when I signed these deals three, six, nine months ago, my audience was a, a fraction of it. But the way that I think about it is like these people believed in me, right? They gave me things early on. I might as well be good um, and just build this out. And in the future, if I want new inventory, I have to launch new things. So my biggest challenge is like with all the things that I'm doing, you know, going to like a, a weekly news or sorry, going from like three times a week to a daily newsletter, right? Like, you know, I don't know that my audience wants daily because when I first signed up, most people were told they were going to get a weekly thing, right? And then I updated it to twice a week and now it's three times a week, right? And my unsubs are, you know, like really, really great. It's like a tenth of a percent of people on sub per email, which is really, really good. Um, so new, newsletter sponsors one. Um, and then also too, like there are companies out there that allow you to monetize like on a cost per sub or a cost per click basis. So I've got different partnerships and things lined up where some newsletter or some, I don't know, other company might come in and they'll say, hey, Chase, I'm going to pay you $3 per click. Or I'll pay you $3 per sub. So I've got now like in the newsletter, some sections that are for people that are on this monthly retainer sponsorship. I've got some that are kind of, I guess, quote unquote, affiliate or performance-based. Um, and then I also plug things of my own. So every quarter I do a virtual event. Um, you know, I've got courses. So sometimes I'll do dedicated emails to my newsletter for courses. Um, maybe about three weeks ago, I was just like, hey, I got tons of people asking me if I'm ever going to run a sale on my course. I haven't done one in a long time. Let me run a sale. It's a 24-hour flash sale. No one had a heads up. I sent three emails. And it made like, I think 15 grand, right? From three cents of emails, took me 15, 20 minutes to write. So between like the, actually on, outside of just like the course and stuff, the, just between like newsletter sponsors and social sponsors and kind of some of these affiliate deals, 
dude, that will do probably about mid six figures for me this year in revenue and almost all of its profit just because it's just me and, you know, I already am acquiring the audience. Exactly. I don't pay. So, so yeah, like I think the, the, the wheel that I have is greater than most people just because I have a lot of businesses in terms of like, I can monetize it through agency clients. I can monetize it through consulting deals. Dude, I had a client pay me 10 grand a month for a 45 minute call a week. Right. And they came from the newsletter. Um, you know, one of the largest companies in Israel paid me $4,500 for a one hour call to teach their team about email marketing. So it's almost like overwhelming because the opportunities, once you build it are like endless. Like I have like so many things I want to promote and so many things that I want to do and so much demand, but I just don't have enough supply. It's interesting. Like I see you're an advisor in some brands, you're an angel investor in brands as well. Like you've got a, a really solid amount of different wheels just spinning. Where does the angel investor effort like come into fruition? Like what brought that to life for you? Um, and then this advisor track, I'd be curious to know a little bit more about that. So I know there's two questions there, um, but I'd love to hear like, what's the, what's going on with all of these different pieces and how, uh, how's that all going? Yeah. So I think like when I had no audience and therefore no leverage, I had to put money into companies to get, you know, points or, or equity or shares or options. So a lot of like the early stuff was more like, Hey, I'll invest in the numbers aren't big. I'll invest 5,000 to 20,000, let's say into a company. Right. And, you know, oftentimes like the, the amount that I own at that little check size is like a percent of a percent of a percent. Right. Like, but, but I felt early on that doing like the angel advising stuff would get me into rooms that I otherwise probably wouldn't be privy to. So I almost was trading like money for access in a sense. Um, and, and now kind of the evolution of that is like, because I have the platform, because I have the distribution, Companies are coming to me saying, hey, you know, we don't really necessarily care about your money. If you want to put money in, we'd love to have you. We want to give you options and we want to give you shares and equity to advise us. So the, the early part was I had to give money and I probably invested in, I don't know, three to five companies where I wrote, you know, five to $20,000 checks. Now I'm in another three to five, let's call it, where I'm not writing money. I'm just giving them time or kind of advice. And now I'm getting shares. So one of the the most successful ones I've been into was this company called Triple Whale. Um, and I got in with them at their seed round as an advisor. I got like $20,000 worth of shares in their seed round. Dude, these, these shares, I can't say the exactly, but these shares have, let's say, between 15 to 30x on paper. Right? So that they're somewhere in the mid six-figure range in terms of on paper. Again, I don't know if I'm ever going to see a, a dollar or a cent from that, but I'm doing more of that. But, but part of what I'm doing now, and this isn't for everyone, but because I have such limited inventory and I have only want to promote things that I trust, it's like I almost have to have equity in a company to then let them pay me to promote. So almost kind of like it went from me paying them to get access to them giving me points to advise. And now the more or less the only companies that can promote in my audience because I got such low inventory is companies I, I have equity in. So one is called retention.com. I have you know some ownership in there and they also pay me um, to do it. So it's almost like that's the way that I'm moving is like, I have to have, you know, a, a lot of different bets where it's like, uh, you know, a base kind of compensation, maybe a retainer or plus performance pay plus, you know, equity. So it's almost like it kind of sounds a little bit greedy, but as you kind of build the audience, you have such little that you can do that you have to be picky. And you, you throw these deals out there thinking that people are going to tell you to F off and that you're crazy. And then people are either like, yes, or they'll negotiate, right? I think what's interesting is like you're talking about essentially ownership and like using leverage to kind of be able to get ownership in some of these companies and then 
ultimately you're looking for these wins like the triple whales, et cetera, to kind of essentially build wealth for yourself. What gave you that perspective on trying to like build equity through wealth, like or build wealth through equity and ownership. Like, could you give me a bit of an understanding of that philosophy? And I want to take this even a little bit step further. So think about the little ones, your two little ones, the message that you would have to them about the importance of ownership, if they're trying to like create wealth, could you just give the insights around why you believe ownership is important and why it's something that you have played, you've leveraged in your your growth? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a couple of things that I think about, like when I take on a business opportunity. So I've got like my agency, for example, where, um, you know, we did right around $10 million last year in revenue and we're, we're growing. Um, and, and in that, like the, the, the annual cash flow from that right now isn't great because we're re- reinvesting everything just aggressively into growth. Right. Um, but, but the play there is like a mid to long-term play where, you know, if we get this to 20, 30, $40 million in revenue, you know, the exit there will be eight figures. So that that one is really where a lot of my eggs in are for like mid to long-term growth. But it's not like, again, we, we get paid decent, right? We get paid like low six figures for that business, but it's not like making me wealthy today. Um, I've got other plays where like where I run the newsletter and I do courses. Those are great short-term cash, but like no one's going to buy my course business because it's my face and everything. And no one's going to buy my newsletter business because it's my face. So the, the play there is like short, maybe short to midterm, potential long-term, Cash flow. I want. I want cash flow. I own it, but like, it's not going to become something that it's a sellable asset. And then I was working with a lot of these people through the newsletter in my audience, and um, a lot of times I wouldn't disclose how much I was making them. But every month they came back to re up, right? And it didn't matter whether I raised my price or they were the same. They kept re upping. So I just started thinking, like, hmm, you know, if they're paying me X, I got to be making them, you know, two X, right, or three X. I'm like, how do I start sharing in this upside, right? Uh, do I do like a lower base plus like percentage of pay? So I kind of did that type of thing. And then I started seeing what I was making these companies, right? If they were paying me five grand, I was often doing 15 to 30 grand for them, right? So it's like, instead of charging them five, I would charge them like 3,500 or four grand. And I would take like 25 or 30% of the revenue I brought them that way. You know, we both shared in the winnings. And then it got to a point where it's like, okay, if I can negotiate a base plus performance, can I negotiate equity? And just by being dumb enough, by being greedy enough, by not knowing what I was doing, I just started asking, right? Like the whole thing, like closed mouths don't get fed. I've never been afraid to ask. The worst thing that someone's going to say is no. And oftentimes a lot of people would say, do say no. It's like, ah, you know, I'm already giving you a great deal. Like, why do you need more? It's like, well, I've got such level inventory. Like, this is what I want. And this is what I feel is fair. Take it or leave it. And then, and then they cave in, right? So, and with those, it's like, it's great because those align with, short, mid and long term, or let's say with this retention.com deal, you know, I have equity in the company and my deal with them is kind of structured and I'm just being very transparent where it's a flat fee or a percentage, whichever is greater. So, you know, they, let's say they pay me X um, and then the, the percentage that I take on revenue is 20%. So let's just say, again, this isn't the right number, but let's just say they pay me a grand, let's say they pay me $1,000. And if I was to drive them, let's say $10,000 in revenue, the 20% would be 2K. So they either would pay me the 1K for that month if I didn't make more, or if I made more, they'd pay me 2K. So kind of I'm structuring these deals too, where it's like, I want to have the upside in the in the greater situation. Um, so I, I don't know if that helps, but like that kind of protects me short-term, I get cash flow, mid-term and long-term, if, if there's a liquidation or transaction event, they go public, if they get acquired, if they raise fundraising. 
I have the ability to share in that upside. So I, I don't know what it equates to, but like, I just wasn't afraid to ask. And again, a lot of people tell me like, no, but some people say yes. And those are the people I work with. Do you see yourself down the road? Like, let's say 15, 20 years, you do get to see these exits, et cetera. Are you still doing the t- same type of thing or have you switched it up? Are you uh, kind of relaxing on a beach or something like that? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I genuinely love what I do. Like I was on paternity leave for a while and like, I love my family, but I was also itching to get back to work because I'm just so obsessed with what I do. And like every day, like growing subscribers and growing followers, it's just like, it's such a fun game that I like to play. And, and, and as like, I get better at it, and again, still don't know everything, but as I get better, it just makes me want to become better, right? Like I want to be the best at everything I do. Like I want to be in the top 1% of everything. So I, I don't know. I, th- I think I would like to think I'm doing what I'm doing just on a larger scale, right? Hopefully more zeros behind on my following, you know, instead of like 180 something on, on LinkedIn, hopefully I'm at like 1.8 million, right? And instead of, you know, X numbers of dollars in the bank, hopefully it's, you know, more zeros, right? So I really love what I do. Um, I've been really interested in this concept too, like kind of going back to like that lose the berry site and this AI site that I might buy into. I really like this idea too, of like buying under monetized sites that have lots of traffics and building like really strong newsletter businesses. So um, right now it's just like personal capital that I'm doing that with. I don't know if that ends up becoming something I build a fund for. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I really like the idea of like doing these things and maybe partnering with other people and, you know, kind of dividing and conquering. So we'll see. It's probably probably somewhere in the middle. Maybe I'm maybe I'm working on my social media accounts from the beach, but I definitely want to be working. There's it's an interesting play. Like there's a lot of um a lot of folks on LinkedIn will go hard against working hard and like embracing the idea of some of the grind, which is like kind of the a part of being a content creator. What is your thoughts on the the anti-work movement and that whole shift? Like do you think if if someone is looking to actually have a meaningful impact on content creation, they're trying to build these pages, et cetera. Is there a shortcut? Am I is am, is it possible for someone to not work hard and get there? Or what are your thoughts? I've been on all this ends of the spectrum at some point or another, right? On paternity leave, I was like doing nothing, and on you know before that, I was doing six, seven days a week. The the grind. I think there's like a happy medium, right? Where like it it is it is really hard work, and it is a lot of work. But if you enjoy it, it doesn't feel like that, right? Like I genuinely love it that like I'm obsessed and I want to do it and I wish I could spend more time on it, um, right? So I, I think you have to work hard, but I've also like channeled that into like, how do I work really smart? And, and the way that you do that is you find one, two, maybe three people on a platform that you want to aspire to be. That if I could tell you, hey, hey Chase, in, in six months, you could be like Ross on Twitter or you can be like Ross on LinkedIn or whoever it is that you look up to. Um, what would you do to get there? Like, what are you willing to do? Um, and then reverse back kind of into that thing. So I think on every platform, there is a small percentage, there's a handful of people that know something that you don't, right? On on YouTube, there are people that know things I don't and I suck at YouTube and I can't get past 10,000 subs, right? Um, on, on Instagram, like I'm, I've been stuck at like 20,000 followers for, for, for years. I just, no matter what I do, I just can't crack it. I try the shorts, I try the reels, I try this, I try that. I try the carousel post. I just can't do it. But on on Twitter, I'd say I've semi-figured it out. And on LinkedIn, I've really figured that out lately in terms of building this. So it's like, can you find people like me, not saying me, but people like me, and can you hire them? Uh, you know, Can they consult for you? Can you pay them to do it? Um, can you join a cohort that they're doing? Like, whatever it is that they offer. And, and 
the interesting thing is like most people at the highest level don't offer this stuff, right? And it, it's really been something that I've been toying with. I've had tons of people asking me if I'd grow their LinkedIn's and I've kind of said, sure, to some people, we could try this out. And other people, I'm like, no, I don't do this because I've never offered social media. I've always found the most enjoyment and the most value and the most benefit from just selfishly doing it myself. Um, but like, it's also too, it's like, man, like, should I be offering it? So I'm kind of in like this equilibrium. I'm kind of like in this limbo place of like, being pulled in either direction. Like, do I do it? I've told some people that we can start soon and like, ah, do I want to do it? So I'll probably just end up offering it as a service to help other people. But like, it's, 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 it's interesting. I've wanted to hire other people on LinkedIn and Twitter and the people that I've wanted to hire don't offer it. So it's kind of this annoying thing that makes me want it more. Um, so I, I don't know if that answers the question, but like it, it's working hard, but like really working smart, following the right people. Like the way that I learned how to grow on LinkedIn is I just picked three people to follow and every single day I'd look at their posts. How, how often were they posting? Were they posting images? Were they posting links? Were they posting carousels? Who was engaging with their stuff? Were they editing their description? Why do they why do they post every day at 10 a.m. PST? What am I missing? Like, why are they doing this? Are they trying to create consistency um, and psychologically with their followers that they know to expect a post from Ross every day at 10 a.m. PST? Um, so like I obsessively for like three months just studied creators and then reverse engineered it. And dude, like, I ended up, I'm not, I'm not growing faster than those creators that I like was not copying, but like pulling insights from, right? Take us to school on that. Like you studied it. You went to school, the self-created MBA of studying the LinkedIn. What are some of those lessons that you learned that you didn't know until after going through the process of reverse engineering some of the best? And what can you share that will assist someone who wants to get to that level? Like break it down for us. Yeah, so I think it's a couple of things. I think every platform has different content formats or different content types at work. For a really long time on Twitter, it was Twitter threads. You know, you would write Twitter threads and if you had the right people engaging, like those would blow up. And I still think Twitter threads are effective. I think they're a little bit less effective than they were before. I feel like Twitter is obviously a whole weird state right now. But like, for example, Twitter threads were the way to grow. Right now on LinkedIn, it's LinkedIn carousels, which most people are just repurposing Twitter threads into a carousel. And it's basically... Think about like a PDF. It's almost like a group of images or a, a document that you scroll between for those that are unfamiliar. So, so carousels really seem to be working. So I just kept seeing, like, I didn't even know what a carousel was. I didn't even know how to create it. I kept seeing these people making it. I'm like, dude, these seem to be getting the most engagement. Uh, polls on LinkedIn are ridiculous with how much reach they get. So I just was studying, like, what are the content types and the formats first and foremost that people are doing? So carousels, uh, polls. Uh, things with images on LinkedIn seem to do better than things that are just text-based. Videos on LinkedIn don't seem to do very well for me or most people I've seen. Like the engagement seems to be like a fifth or a half of like what you'd get otherwise. So I was just taking notes and like I would just write down every single day, hey, Ross had uh, a video that underperformed. He got 50 likes, but his post with an image got 100 likes. I would literally just manually keep a spreadsheet jotting down the same, you know, one, two, three creators what they posted and what the result was. I was just manually tracking this. And then I was reading the comments, like what were people saying? How big were the followers that were commenting on it, right? Because like with a lot of this stuff, like on Instagram, you used to hear this concept of like power boosting where like the larger someone's following, the more reach that engagement that they had. If they engaged with your post early, it was really helpful. The same thing's true on LinkedIn. The same thing's true on Twitter, right? Um, also too, when you ask people to engage with you on platforms, what is the best engagement? So on Twitter, Getting people to retweet you and comment seems to have the most weight, whereas likes likes are good, but they're not as great. Um, and, and Twitter just recently rolled out bookmarks where you can now see people's bookmarks. 
I'm wondering how that's going to factor into the algorithm. And I don't know yet. So I'm studying that. That's one of the things I'm looking at. On LinkedIn, LinkedIn has likes, comments, and reposts. Comments seem to have the greatest weight. Uh, likes have some weight. And then reposts are kind of a hit or a miss, right? Um, the, the time in which people engage is really important, right? I didn't realize that like on LinkedIn, like the sooner the better, like sub an hour, you need people to engage. Um, sharing your post with a UTM to someone to engage like can actually get you in trouble. There's just like a million things I can go on about um, that like I was studying every day. There was like a dozen variables that I was studying um, and I really learned. And then sometimes I would just DM these people or ask people like, yo, is there a reason why you do this? Most of the time they didn't respond. But as my following's grown, as I start asking people questions, they're like, yo, what up, Chase? It's so cool that you reached out. I'm like, I think you're the coolest, but thanks for letting me know, right? It's interesting. I was listening to a podcast with Mr. Beast and he was talking about his early days of YouTube and cracking the code there. And it was very similar where he woke up every day, studied the algorithm, studied what content was hitting. He had a spreadsheet and he went through it. I think he talked about having like a, a WhatsApp group with a few of his other creator friends and they were just geeking out about the growth in the, the platform. So it's interesting to hear like another creator kind of, follow a very similar footstep to that. And I think it goes back to this idea of like, you just naturally have to be curious and reverse engineer the success of others to kind of get where you want to be. Um, is reverse engineering something that you apply to all elements or just social media? Like when you're thinking about the newsletter monetization strategy, was reverse engineering success something that you applied to that as well? Yeah, I think like to a degree, right? Like there's things that like you, you can't figure out from reverse engineering. You just have to figure it out by like just trying and and hacking it together and, and failing. But yeah, I think like my whole life has been like an experiment of reverse engineering. Like how can I get to the end result that I want as quickly as possible? And you're either trading time, money or time and money, right? So I think like early in my career, I would just like kind of brute force, try to crack the code with time. And sometimes I would and sometimes I wouldn't. Now it's like, how do I optimize my time and spend the least amount of time possible, right? How to become the most efficient and therefore you're paying for it with typically money um, or there's kind of barters where like, for example, I know people that are really big on, let's say YouTube that I, that aren't big on Twitter that we could just trade. So it kind of gets to a point too where like some of these people, they don't want your money, right? Like, you know, you paying them a grand, like it's neither here nor there for them, but you teaching them how they can have the success that they're having on YouTube, on Twitter or LinkedIn, that is worth, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to them, right? So can we mind share together on these topics and kind of equally add value? So yeah, my whole plan now is like, you know, I, I don't care what it is. If someone knows something that I don't, I'm going to find a way to, to figure it out. I'm going to pay them. I'm going to offer them value. I'm going to harass them until they respond. Like, you know, so with the newsletter, um, the first newsletter I built in 2017, it grew from zero to 500,000 subscribers in 10 months with spending very little dollars on traditional ads. Um, and, and the growth strategies were very different, but a lot of the inspiration was taken from like the hustle, the morning brew, you know, the skim on like just creating this really strong editorial voice and building kind of like a community and a following. So some of those things were kind of like things I learned by studying. And then other things I learned by like the actual, the channels that we picked was just because we didn't have a whole lot of money that we wanted to invest at the time because we didn't have any monetization set up. So we had to figure out ways to acquire subs for, you know, pennies, you know, one cent, five cent, 10 cents and running ads, you know, we were getting one or two or $3 subs, which just wasn't scalable. So yeah, I think reverse engineering, like the life that you want to live by following those folks that have done it 
It's super important. If you were to try to describe yourself, would you say you're process driven or creative driven? Like where would you say you fall in the, the spectrum? Are you more about the process or are you creative by nature? Honestly, I don't know that I'm either. Like I think I'm somewhere in the middle. Like I don't think I over index in either direction where I think my greatest strength is that like, I don't care like what happens, like as long as I try. Like I think the the biggest strength that I have that's a lot of people's weaknesses is just like, I'll put myself out there and I'm okay looking stupid. Like, dude, if I have an idea for a business, I don't care about the LLC. I don't care about the website. I'm just going to start talking about it. Um, so like, for example, uh, you know, I don't know, this is going to go live in a couple of weeks, right? At this point that this will already happen, but I'm doing a webinar on like teaching people how to become more efficient and make more money through AI for their sales and marketing. A buddy and I were literally on a call shooting the shit. We had this idea on the call. Instead of shooting the shit, we made a type form. And we posted and we're like, oh, well, we got hundreds of people signed up. I guess we're doing this, right? And now in the two week time between when we posted and when it's actually happening, we're like, all right, well, now we actually have to go put together this presentation and like make this happen, right? So that's that's how I am. It's like, if I have a good idea, I just post it. I post a poll, I'll post something about it. And dude, this was something we came up with. Let's, let's, it's a week ago. The time frame, you know, when it happened, it wasn't relevant, but let's say it's a week ago. Dude, I put together a type form on that call. Um, the first part of the type form was basically screening and asking people questions. So uh, what's your name? What's your business? What's your role? How much revenue does your business do per month? Uh, what do you want to learn about AI? And what are your questions about AI, right? Dude, I posted this actually on Twitter today. We had, I don't know, fifteen to 1,800 visits and we had like 800 or 900 submissions so far. So at this point right now, this was something we came up with. We posted it on, I think, LinkedIn a few times. I sent it as a small section of my newsletter. And by the time the event happens, we'll have 1,500 or 2,000 people registered. And almost probably if you take a third of that, we'll have like 500 to 700 people live. Um, so, so I think that's my greatest strength is just the fact that like I'm confident enough in my abilities to make stuff happen that if I have an idea, I just do it. And then oftentimes I might just have to be like, you know, like a dog with his tail between his legs. Like, guys, I tried this. It didn't, it just didn't work, right? It, it doesn't. So I, I don't know that like I'm process or creative. I'm just like, just do it and then figure it out when you have to figure it out. So when you launch that type of an event and it's kind of like just out of nowhere, so to speak, are, what are you trying to accomplish from that? Is it building the mailing lists? What's your, what's your thinking around the reason for doing it? Is it capturing attention, more followers? Why do you launch it? Everything. So with this one in particular, it's all of the above, right? Like AI is just the hot thing right now. So just can ride the wave. It's something that I'm deeply interested in and, and leveraging and using and my friend even more so like not that there's experts but he from the, everything i've seen is probably one of the more knowledgeable people and he's using it in very specific use cases so um we wanted to kind of just get attention mailing lists kind of start to build a uh, noise in that realm and then too like we're going to probably build out like a cohort based course or some kind of info product so we now have a list of literally almost 900 people saying like what they want to learn and their questions they have. And we're literally using AI to sort through all the type form data. So we've now have like a tally of like, this is what people want. And then we have their LinkedIn. So we have their titles and we can say, and dude, it's pretty interesting to say the data. So like, let's say there's like 800, 900 people. Um, I don't remember the exact numbers, like mid 800s. Um, we have like preset revenue where, where like you can say, hey, my business is doing zero to 25K a month. My business is doing 25 to... 50k 50 to 100 100 to 200 and then 250 plus or something 
And it's really interesting then to sort of that way based off like, okay, people of zero to 25K that are beginners in their business, what are the things they want to learn? And how does that differ from, you know, people that are doing north of 250K a month? And, and with that, right, like just by looking at the data, we weren't planning on doing this. We were thinking of maybe doing like a cohort. We're now going to do like a low ticket course, maybe like a $200, $300 course for the people in that smaller bucket that want more like prompts and more of those things. Whereas like the, the mid to higher ticket thing is going to be for these companies doing a quarter million dollar a month or more that want to build out programs and systems and ops for their company to be more efficient. And that's going to be more custom. So long winded, it's like, how do we capture attention? How do we start building out in an industry that is really exciting and really big and just growing so fast? And how do we leverage 500 people or 700 people that's probably going to be live on this call to teach them, to see the chat, to understand their questions, to answer their questions? Um, so that way we can build products and or services that really feed their needs versus trying to come up with something that we think they want and they're just flopping. How is AI showing up in your workflows today when you think of all of the different platforms that you're running, the channels that you're running? I know you mentioned that you're getting, you're trying to train it on your own voice before you use it on your channels. Can you talk me through a little bit of the AI infrastructure that you're using um, across all of your different pages and your channels today? Yeah, so I think it's a couple of things. I think one is at the agency, we're primarily using AI around like uh, like notes and kind of transcriptions of calls. So there's like one called like Aroma and there's one called like Fireflies where they're literally in there, which removes like someone actually having to take notes. You can be like a lot more present in the meeting because you know that this notes are going to be taken and sent to everyone after. So that's been really nice. Before we'd have like account managers or assistants show up and they would be trying to like scribble notes the whole time and then you couldn't read their notes and then they have to like stop you and be like, sorry, what, what was that? Or how do you spell that? What's that word? So I think that's been like a game changer with the agency. It's just like if people can't make the calls, you're not having to go talk to someone and get the play by play you know, have the recording, um, you know, using a lot of like the chat GPT to understand like, you know, for example, like the data that we had, like we're feeding the data from the type form and it's kind of doing back to us versus otherwise we have to manually do it and try to cluster and group things together. Um, also using things around like uh, on some of my pages, most of it's uh, around like uh, curation or repurposing versus like creation. On my personal stuff, it's all pretty much creation. So on the pages, like I'm using, and I guess, some of it's AI, some of it's just like more efficiency, but like uh, there's like Twitter advanced search, there's like Taplio, there's like Tweet Hunter. And then like there's certain tools where like you can grab URLs and it's going to spit out a carousel for you. So instead of me having to sit there and take screenshots and build it in Canva, I just plug the link into and it spits out the carousel. So I guess some of it's like quote unquote like AI and some of it's just like tools that help with workflow. Um, but But those types of things. So around like, understanding meetings and notes and some of these uh tools are even trying to now understand like the sentiment of like what's the call positive was it neutral was it negative who spoke the most what were some of the key bullets to the points right where was like the most engagement so i'm just using it to like a cut back on meetings and b just like get the spark notes through some of those calls just by looking at the transcriptions and then b like trying to organize big data in just very easy and also too like i'll take like old blog posts i made and be like hey summarize this for LinkedIn, right? And then I can post on LinkedIn, like, here are three things that, you know, are about this from my own content. So I'm basically taking my own threads and my own things and just say, give me the spark notes, give me the digest, give me the tweet version of this. When it comes to Twitter, like if you were starting all over, would you start on Twitter or would you shift your attention maybe more towards LinkedIn? Like, do you still think Twitter's the place to start or would you shift more towards LinkedIn now? Yeah, I'm, I'm more bullish on, on LinkedIn. 
I don't know, like starting out that it matters. I think both are hard, both are easy, right? Like they're, they're neither here nor there. Um, I don't know the, the big reason. So I've been on, I've been on LinkedIn for, I don't know, 11 or 12 years, but I half asked it for most of it. It wasn't until August of 2022 that I actually started going hard on it. Um, and you know, essentially what it was like, the reason I started going hard is one Elon announced that he was potentially buying Twitter. I was like, man, this is going to be amazing or terrible for my personal brand. Um, and, and my business was pretty overly dependent looking back on Twitter as a source, you know, driving tons of revenue for the agency, for the core subs, for the newsletter, right? You know, my newsletter 75,000, I think 30 something thousand of them had come from Twitter, right? So most of them had. At that point, the newsletter is smaller, right? So it's probably a greater percentage. I was like, this is going to be great or terrible. Like, what can I do? I'm not good at YouTube. I'm not good at Instagram. I'm not good at TikTok. Um, I think LinkedIn is probably where my audience is, like the B2B folks, the folks that have disposable income. I think the type of content I create, written text, um, maybe images could be good for LinkedIn. I started going really, really hard on LinkedIn then. And looking back, it was the best decision because my Twitter has kind of been down a little bit. I'm probably down since Elon took over. 20, 25%, which I think is common for most folks. I've seen some big creators down 20, 30, 40, even sometimes 50%. So I don't know. I'm really bullish on LinkedIn right now just because I'm having a lot of success there. And Twitter, in my mind, isn't what it used to be. Um, so it's hard. It's kind of like pick your poison. What do you do? Um, and I think there is a world where you could do both. I kind of was doing everything at once and I still do everything at once. But I know that the, the best advice is like to focus on one, but I don't know. I think if you're good and you can, if you have friends on both, just try both and see which one hits. When it comes to building the newsletter on LinkedIn, what strategies are you finding that work today? Are you pushing just a link? Hey, everyone sign up, or are you trying something different that's going to actually engage folks in a, a more unique way to actually drive those conversions? One, I haven't seen people really do or talk about it. I've seen some people do it, but no one's really talking about it. It's like, on LinkedIn, you can edit your description after you post. Um, so what, what I'll basically do is I'll post like a content piece that does well. And then as soon as it's been like an hour or it's gone viral enough, I'll update the description, just add like a PS to the post. Like PS, join 75 other thousand marketers and founders who subscribe to my newsletter here, link here. And I'll drop a link in the comment. Um, you know, I'll create content too that like is carousel that'll then offer people the option like, hey, do you want this? So for example, I did a 25 chat GTV prompts to 25 extra copywriting. Dude, this this got like thousands of likes, hundreds of thousands of views. And everyone kept commenting saying like, hey, will you make this like a text version so we can just copy and paste it? So what I quickly did is I, I threw it uh, a landing page together on my site and just said, hey, do you want the text version of this post? Subscribe here. Dude, I collected like two or 3,000 emails. So I've just been like really smart with like creating viral content and then people want like the actual text for because it's like when you feed a prompt you don't want to have to copy and paste and type out 25 prompts right so not that i'm being like tricky but i'm being strategic i guess is a better word of like creating content and then giving people an alternative if they want to actually like copy and paste it word for word on how they can do it so what they basically do is they opt into my newsletter and the first email they receive links them to like a page or like a google document saying here's the the specific text that you can copy and paste. Are you planning for this stuff in advance or is it like on the fly when you see this trend of people commenting, you're like, okay, I have to react. Like how much of your work is proactive versus reactive? Initially uh, and transparently, it was pretty reactive. I didn't think that people would want to copy it word for word or, you know, and then paste it in. So 
you know, initially it was reactive and now it's proactive. Now that I've had that experience, I know that people want this. I can anticipate it. Um, so, I, so I'll do it in advance and do like everything that I do because it's for a warm audience is so basic. Like I don't write thousand word copy. I don't overly design things. I think like my greatest asset is like, I'm okay with it being basic. Like it doesn't have to be like perfect or polished, whatever, because people know me and like me, it's kind of part of my personal brand where it's a little bit more raw and organic and genuine where I could just go build a landing page and it literally do like literally for this thing that two or 3000 people downloaded, it literally said 25 chat GT prompts, enter your email below if you want me to email you them. Like that's all it said. There's no social proof. There's no all this stuff. It's just a simple Squarespace thing. I made it in, in two minutes. Like I built out the automation in two minutes. So my whole thing is optimizing for speed and, you know, asking for forgiveness if anything goes wrong. I love it. A lot of people are going to hear that who are like more focused on design and visual. Everyone needs to have a perfect headshot. They're going to cringe. They're going to lose their mind. What do you have to say to the creator who tells themselves, I want to be in Chase's shoes, but I need to spend a lot of time fine tuning all of the things. Like, would you tell them that they need to get out of their own way or yeah, I'd be curious to know your thoughts. Yeah, I would. I mean, dude, like, I think at the end of the day, like we all think people care so much more about how we're dressed and how we look and how we sound and how we talk. And, and people probably care for like a fraction of a second, right? They probably look at this and be like, classic Chase, you didn't do a whole lot, but I really, really like your content. And I really want it. Like maybe they think that and then they just get used to it. That's just what they come to expect from me. It's like, I don't do any fluff. Like I don't do any BS. Like, I, you know, I'd rather do like a 20 minute talk that is super action packed than bore someone for an hour, right? That, I think that, and that's also just my personal band and my mantra is like, just be direct. Don't waste people's time. I don't want people to waste my time. So I think get out of your own way. Um, and it's, it's going to take time. Like, it's not going to be something that you go from zero to hundred overnight on like being this perfectionist. Everything's like custom, hand-drawn, illustrated, beautiful, pixel perfect. Um, but the more that you can slowly tug and pull away from that, the, the better. The, there are so many people do that are way more talented than me, way smart, like way smarter, way better. But the reason that I'm doing just as well and oftentimes, if not better, is because like I just have a little bit of each of those things that makes me dangerous. And I'm okay with that. One of the things that I find fascinating about you is you're like very transparent with the creator community around everything. On your website, it lists how much you were making when you were 25, 23, like, et cetera. Why are you so transparent with everything? I don't know. I one like I don't really care. I feel like it's we live in the internet. Like if someone really wanted to dig, maybe they could find it. I, I don't really know. Um, two, like I've always found those things super interesting and super inspiring for me. Like I love when you know people like for example like Pat Flynn was a big one who used to uh, announce like his monthly income. Exactly, and I just thought that was so cool and just goes against the the frame of everything that people do. It's so counterintuitive. Like people don't like talking about money, and a lot of my friendships started out really uncomfortable because I'd be like. Well, so how much does that make? And, you know, what does it do? And like, people are so uncomfortable where it's like, I, I often forget that because I'm so open, other people aren't, but you just attract other people that like want to share and want to give. So I think one is like just inspiring others. Cause like when I saw Pat Flynn and some of these people doing it, that helped me reverse engineer, like how to make money online. And it really got me started. So, uh, inspiration kind of paying it forward type of a thing. Uh, and I don't know, I think being transparent is important. Like, I think it allows you to be like really human and believable um, and too many people just talk a big game and they don't back it up or, you know, again, and that's to each their own. I just want to be somewhere where it's like, this is my thoughts. This is what I think. Here's how I'm doing. You know, listen to me, believe me or, or don't, right? Like it doesn't hurt me either way, but those that buy in, like they do really, really well. And, and the fact that every day I get 
emails, DMs, messages, calls, texts of people just saying, I was moved by your content. I was inspired by your content. You know, you allowed me to get out of debt or like what, whatever it might be that people say, like these crazy things. Sometimes they're probably just being nice. Like that is really the driving force for me to do, you know, to the nth degree more and more. One of the things that I also wanted to touch on that I found fascinating is like in your story, you've raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for Crohn's disease. Um, Tell the audience a little bit about your background. I'd love to kind of better understand how Crohn's disease shows up in your world and how it impacted your life. And that amount of money towards a, a cause is admirable for sure. I'd love to dive in a little bit around that, how it happened. Um, and it, I would also, I'm a big believer in plugs. So if there's an association that you've donated in particular to, by all means, feel free to share that as well. But could you tell us a little bit around Crohn's, its impact in your life and uh, why you've done such a thing like raising all of this money for Crohn's disease? Yeah. So starting with what Crohn's is. So Crohn's basically is inflammation of your digestive tract. That's like the simplest version. And then there's something called ulcerative colitis, which is inflammation of your colon. And those two are formed under what's called IBD, which is inflammatory bowel disease. There's about 1.4 million people in the US that are diagnosed with this. It's obviously small as a percentage, right? It's like a percentage of a percent, um, but large as a, as a number, right? It's like 1.4 million people too many. And it's something that people have for their whole life. So at the age of 13, I spent the entire year pretty much being sick, like in my bed, sleeping 12, 14 hours a day. I was really skinny back then. And I was, almost became like a skeleton. Like I was like 100 pounds at the time in seventh or eighth grade. And I was, I, I went down to like 85 pounds because I couldn't, uh, like everything that I ate, you know, you just go to the bathroom and you couldn't keep and it hurt to eat. And it was just, it was really hard. So the problem was that year after or month after month, doctor after doctor, I kept getting like misdiagnoses. Oh, you just got a bug or you just got this or you just got that where it took me close to a year to get the diagnosis that I actually had Crohn's. So once I started finally feeling better at 14, I was like, look, this thing sucks. This is scary. There's no getting around it. But at least if you have it, you should know you shouldn't have to suffer for a year like I did. So that was really important and really kind of where I come from is everything is very like mission driven. Like how do you help other people? And I think like the awareness and getting the word out is really ingrained with me from like a teen. Um, so from 14 to 16, I basically spent like all my time uh, dedicated to raising awareness and fundraising through the, back then it was called the Crohn's and Clytus Foundation of America. Today it's called the Crohn's and Clytus Foundation. And at 16 years old, I became the, the youngest board member of one of the largest chapters of the charity. Um, I think there were probably 50 to 100 chapters of charity. We were like number one or two. We were actually raising like a few million dollars per year um, on the charity. And I served a six-year board term. So from 16 to 22, like I, through high school and college, I was a board member um, and I got mentored by like uh, VPs and executives at banks and pharmaceutical companies, which I think really play like a role in like me just having to grow up and learn um, and whatnot. So, so that was back then and through now. Um, and it's just important to me. So like, for example, like my buddy was in the, I don't know if it was like the Brooklyn or like the New York marathon a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, I helped him raise some money through his thing by promoting it on social and donating to it. Um, maybe about three or so weeks ago, four weeks ago, there was like the Turkey and Syria earthquake. Um, and I had been thinking about this concept that I wanted to create for a while. Initially, it was going to be a paid product where I wanted to share 10 copywriting frameworks with people. Um, things like ADA, things like, you know, before after bridge, right? There's a bunch of these frameworks. And what I basically did is I hopped on my computer for 20 minutes using ChatGPT. Myself and ChatGPT made like this 19-page PDF that went through 10 of these copywriting frameworks. 
uh, what it is, an example, how to use it, and then the prompt to use to create it. Um, and instead of selling it, basically any money that was donated or, uh, or purchased on that thing, I donated directly to the charity. So I just like doing things like that, like using my platform to raise awareness. So it, it wasn't a lot, but literally like it took me 20 minutes to do, made one or two posts. And then like, you know, a couple of days later, donated like a grand to this charity, right? When it comes to that side of Chase, like, have you always felt the desire to give back in while also doing well like where does that even come from is it was it crohn's that triggered it or like was that ingrained in you as a youngin yeah i think crohn's was probably like a big influence and just being on the board for six years i really saw that like charities are amazing and they're great but most often than not like the biggest impact for higher earners and high achievers is actually making their money outside the charity and donating uh, sometimes time right like in the sense that like a lot of people were giving back their time to help kind of raise money and put things together but raising money often is like most mostly what these people need so it's like man i could go spend a lot of time you know working with the charity or working for charity or working out of charity but i think that would be like a really misuse right i think i could probably do more for the charity like making my own business and then donating expertise or my team's resources or those things so i, I think like early on when i had no money it was like trading time and just learning the ropes. And now my whole vision is like, how can I, you know, learn as much as possible, make as much money as possible and share those learnings and, you know, make donations and share like my team's resources with them. I think that's like the perfect bridge um, to, to help them out. I love that. That's great. I'm a very big into the charity world and I love the fact that uh, you're, you're big on preaching it. I've spent a lot of time on boards and I always recommend people who are like early in their careers to definitely get some board experience. What are some of the key lessons that you would have learned from that board experience that you think would benefit other folks to kind of go through? I think that I think a couple of things and, and none of these things were things that I did intentionally. These were things that like I learned kind of in reflection. I think one is like, I, had, I got access for free and consistently to the best mentors in the world. Like I literally had like, uh, so the, the, the lady that ran the board, her husband had sold a company for like over a billion dollars. So she took a liking to me. He took a liking to me. And I just got to meet with them about the board. But I got to talk about things like personal and business and aspirations. So I was mentored from, he, he wasn't a billionaire himself. He, he probably has hundreds of millions of dollars, right? So close enough. Um, so I got mentored from him again. I didn't know at the time like what mentorship was and I didn't understand it. And he probably wasn't someone that I would have been able to access otherwise. And then too, like we had VPs, uh, CEOs, COOs, et cetera, like some really large eight, nine figure banks, uh, biotech companies that all really liked me just because they saw themselves, I think, in me. And they saw that I had a lot of potential and things were just raw. So I think long-winded, like the... Um, the benefits and the impact of having mentors on your career is so super important. Um, and I think a lot of people, obviously not, no, nothing against how them, but like, I think a lot of people approach it the wrong way. A lot of times I get DMs that come across like very desperate. Like I really need you to mentor me and teach me where it's like, uh, I think with them, like I was giving a lot of my time and I was adding value to them and they wanted to help kind of like steer me in the right direction. So it was kind of like mutual vested interest where again, I don't think people mentor to get something in return, but I think often than not, the, they want they want something in return, even if it's just seeing an ROI on, on you doing something, right? But you have to be very selective. So I think the the power of a mentor and the power of mentors in that case, um, and then I think having like channels and outlets in which you can learn things outside of your normal context. So for me, that taught me like guerrilla marketing and marketing in a sense that like 
if you could get people to donate money or donate time, those are very valuable things that then translated to like, how do I convince people to save time or make money or learn from me now? So I just think like psychologically and like fundamentally, like how I think about storytelling and copywriting and marketing comes from that lens of like, it's just like, you know, when people, you know, try to sell you like a religion, it's like they could sell you a religion, they could sell you, you know, solar your house, right? So I just think certain life experiences um, really mesh well that you don't see and that you can't connect the dots, right? Like the whole, I don't know if it's Steve Jobs said, like you can't connect the dots looking forwards, like you can only connect them looking backwards. It's like, those are kind of like the takeaways I had is like the, the value and kind of the importance of mentorship and then looking outside of your industry and doing things outside of your industry to try to get a unique perspective that you can bring in. Before you became a marketer, what is something that you wish that you would have known? I, I think people are focused too much on like pushing products and pushing services and ignoring the human on the other side. I think like humanizing a brand is probably the most important, the least you know understood, the least utilized thing possible. So ways in which we do this. So for like our clients that sell, let's say like e-commerce products, um, we have like this series that we'll run called like literally introduction to the team. So one of our clients is Eight Sleep, you know, like the mattress company I call them like the Tesla for mattresses. What we basically did is like we did a nine part email sequence where we didn't want to just focus on the founders and whatnot. They're obviously very important, but, you know, they're not the only people. So we did, you know, every week, every couple of weeks for three months, you know, meet Ross, who's the engineer, meet Chase, who's the customer support, you know, meet Cinnamon, who was the CEO, like who, who, whoever it was. And we would just show their picture and we would talk about them. We talk about their role and why they like the product and what their day-to-day looks like, really allowing them to be like, sure, this is a $3,000 mattress and we want you to buy it, but we're people and this is what we do and this is how we do it. So I think like humanizing the brand and, you know, as a personal brand, it's a little bit easier because you are one and the same, you're the company and the person, but brands themselves, I think, get that wrong. And in order to be a great founder, entrepreneur, what is the most important skill that you've decided to kind of develop and constantly work on? Yeah, I think it goes back to kind of like what I alluded for before is like as a rookie first time, again, I've been a, I've been a founder a bunch before, but like the first time running a company of this size, like, you know, almost 140 employees, I was like, man, we're so cool. We got so many employees. This is so great. What a flex. Um, and you just create like these, these people that just look up to you and bow down to you. And therefore, like, if you don't respond, they can't make decisions. Like they're almost paralyzed because you haven't enable them to make decisions on their own. So I think like the biggest mindset shame over the years, like I don't even want to be involved. Like if, if you need me, call me, I'm here, but like, just, just, just do it. Like you're smarter than me. You're better than me. We're recruiting people that are more talented. Like you, you tell me, what, what do you want me to do for you? How can I help you? Right? So I think like getting out of their way, empowering your team, letting them lead, um, those types of things are super important. Like now it's like, dude, like no one really reports to me. Like I don't manage anyone. Like I've gone out of the way and I've really helped like the, the people that were supposed to be under me be very autonomous. Where like, you know, I, I can't remember the last time someone's asked me for something. Right. And if they have, they're like, can you stop being cringy on social media? It's probably all they've asked me. Right. You know, I'm, I'm obviously joking, but like that type of thing. So th- I, I'd say that. 
Yeah, I love it. Well, Chase, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast. It's been a great to, great to chat with you. It's been amazing to hear more about your story. Folks, if you do want to connect with Chase, you can find him at chasediamond.com, D-I-M-O-N-D. Want to make sure that you get it spelled correctly. Um, follow him on Twitter as well, Ecom Chase Diamond and LinkedIn. That's the channel where he's putting out tons of great content. And also, I strongly encourage folks to check out Daily Copywriter as well. Thanks for having me. And if you guys made it this far, thanks for listening. Really appreciate it. Appreciate you, Chase. Thanks so much. If you want to know how to create like the grades, let's break it down.